Mark 3.31 says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus here is facing opposition from the religious leaders who have made themselves his enemies to the point that they are seeking any means to get rid of him. If they cannot destroy him socially with lies and character assassinations, which they've been using, they will and eventually do seek to kill him and remove him from the earth. Good luck with that. You think he's gone? He's not gone. (laughs) But Jesus is also facing opposition to God's purpose for his life from those closest to him, his own family. Their love for him could cause him emotional conflict with his pursuit of the Father's will. This can be far more difficult to resist than the opposition of enemies. Heartstrings may be tugged. Guilt feelings may be invoked. Motives may be impugned. Satan will use this two-pronged attack to try and divert Jesus from fulfilling the Father's plan. And he uses this same approach with Jesus' followers. Uh, We read earlier back in Mark 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. This is Jesus and his disciples. They're, they're, They're mobbed and they can't even take part in a meal. And it says, But when his own people heard about this, his family, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he's out of his mind. They thought he was losing it. And they were going to go physically grab him and take him away, you know, to, to help him. Jesus' behavior just it did not make sense to his family. They tried to reach him so that they could intervene and help him, possibly by force. Perhaps they thought he was in need of professional help. Some of your families may have or have had the same concern for you. Living in and for the kingdom does not always make sense to the rational mind. And in reality, there are those cultic groups that strike fear in the hearts of every parent. Anyway, they may think you need professional help. This is usually help from a mental or a religious professional. Now, some of you may remember, if you're old enough, back in the 70s, there was a big craze about deprogramming. You remember the deprogramming movement? Where, and there were people getting involved in cults like the Moody's and stuff. They were, you know, mentally controlled in ways. And so these deprogrammers came along and they would physically kidnap a person and take them and hold them for, you know, a week or however long it took to try to break, break this down. Uh, and eventually they started doing that to people who got saved as well. You know, just Christians because, you know, you go out and, you know. Uh, during the Jesus movement, these cults were very active. Uh, Moonies, children of God, more traditional JWs and Mormons. And they were very manipulative with people. Uh, they used to call it love bombing, some of these cults. You know, they go out and just love people into it. And then after they get you into it, then they want to control your life. But where a genuine move of the Spirit exists, the devil will have his counterfeits. Thus Jesus says, beware that no one deceives you. Well, I had one Catholic friend who became a believer in the gospel of Christ Jesus through some discussions among several of us that were on the same job. And his family, it was his mother and sisters, his father had passed away. Uh, they became quite concerned, concerned for him being influenced by a Protestant Heresy. I never considered myself a Protestant. I was raised without a religious background and I wasn't protesting anything. I just heard about Jesus and believed in him and I I still don't uh, identify with that label. I do protest some of those things, but that's not my focus. But Catholicism still claims to be the only perfectly true Christianity. My friend's mother made an appointment for him with a local priest. 
And when that didn't work, it wasn't successful, she threw his Bible out the back door of the house. And when all had failed to persuade him of his error, at one point she said to him in anger, You, you, you Lutheran! This was the worst insult that she could think of. Well, you may at some time be called to pursue a course that those who love you think is crazy, weird, or downright illogical. Even believing friends may question your direction. They may ask, are you sure? They do this out of love and concern for you. They don't know what may be going on between you and the Lord and His will for you. Some have been called to leave stable and profitable professions to pursue crazy paths for the Lord. I remember reading about one guy, and I can't remember all the details of his life, but he was going into his final year of medical school. And he felt the Lord was calling him to quit and go where he, you know, in the state he was now and go to the mission field and do whatever he could. And, you know, everybody thought he was crazy. Yeah, I'm not encouraging anybody to do this. You know, you have to know what the will of God is for your life. But I've read other testimonies of some who had done so. And, you know, the proof for this guy was the abundant fruit that came out of his decision to go and, and follow the Lord in that way. Other times, the Lord has someone right where he wants them to be in a stable and profitable position. But they are no less called to use it all for the furtherance of God's will and God's glory. It is those who lose their lives for Jesus and the gospel's sake who find their real life. Jesus was certain of God's plan for him, at least for today. We may not know more than that. Are you willing to pursue his plan today? Ultimately, each of us must answer to the Lord and not to any other, but we are generally to be accountable to one another. Certainly in matters defined in Scripture, such, such as being unequally yoked together or defrauding one another, bringing lawsuits against one another, uh, and in loving one another. And speaking of my friend, I'm not saying that all Catholics are not saved, or that some Catholics are not saved, but some of you can testify that many, many are not, because you grew up in that. You didn't hear the biblical gospel in a way that you could understand and believe and you know, later on you came to know the Lord Jesus. The gospel of Catholicism is not the biblical gospel. I believe the gospel is buried in there somewhere. But the teachings of the Catholic Church obscure and contradict the true gospel of Christ Jesus. And Catholicism is not alone in this regard. It's imperative that we know and proclaim the biblical gospel. And that's why we try to teach the whole truth of God. The main issue in Catholicism is a works-based righteousness or an earned salvation. You merit graces by your good work. Not grace, but graces. The book of Galatians is very pertinent in this regard since they were dealing with the same corruption of the gospel of grace. So it's difficult for the true good news to be perceived under all the ritual, tradition, and frankly, false doctrine. It's possible to be a lifelong faithful Catholic and yet not know the simple truth of the gospel as given in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for example. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is tragic when families are divided over Jesus, but he told us this would happen. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, he's the prince of peace. Right? He's going to establish a kingdom of peace that eventually will last forever. Right? Uh, but he... This wasn't the mission he was coming to. Now, he did bring peace for men with God, between men and God who believed in him, who trusted in him. Uh, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in this grace in which we stand. So he said, don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, 
many Jewish people's reason for rejecting Jesus as Messiah today is because he didn't bring peace. You can ask him, you know, why don't, why don't you think, it? well, he didn't, you know, Messiah's going to bring peace, but he didn't bring peace. And so this is really setting them up to accept someone else we know as Antichrist because he's going to bring peace. But Jesus does bring peace with God the Father. Henry Morris says, Jesus was prophesied to be the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. And peace on earth was the angel's song at his birth, Luke 2, 14. And the actual translation there is peace on earth to men of goodwill, not peace on earth uh, how's, how's he, and goodwill. Yeah, goodwill toward men, yeah. Uh, it's it's actually peace on earth to men of goodwill was the angel's proclamation. Yet, uh, Jesus has been at the very center of conflict in the world ever since he came. Those who receive him, however, do have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Morris continuing, the promise of global peace will finally be fulfilled when Christ returns. That's true. So in verse 35 of Matthew 10, Jesus says, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He quotes from Micah 7.6. And then he says this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said to honor your father and mother. I mean, that's, that was his law even that he gave. Uh, but not above him. Wouldn't this be arrogant for a mere man to say, he who loves father or more, mother more than me is not worthy of me? He's got to be somebody different than a mere man to make that kind of a claim. But he does say, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is, nothing and no one before me in your life. And he goes on to say, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Many Christian parents are guilty of this. David Guzik said the greatest danger of idolatry comes not from what is bad, but from what is good, like love in family relationships. The greatest danger to the best comes from the second best. In verse 38, he goes on to say, He who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And somebody comments, says, there is something even more apt to rob Christ of his rightful place than family, that is, the love of one's own life. And we're all subject to that. Certainly we're born that way, and that's our focus until we turn ourselves over to the Lord Jesus. So Jesus unites and Jesus divides, depending on our relationship to him. William MacDonald says, a choice must often be made between Christ and family. No ties of nature can be allowed to deflect a disciple from utter allegiance to the Lord. The Savior must take precedence over father, mother, son, or daughter. One of the costs of discipleship is to experience tension, strife, and alienation from one's own family. This hostility is often more bitter than is encountered in other areas of life. End quote. But this doesn't have to be an everlasting division. Many have experienced this conflict and later have been reconciled through the conversion of their loved ones. The best hope for unity with family members is through the disciple of Jesus being faithful and consistent in their walk with Jesus. Talk of craziness and fads and phases can only endure for so long in the face of a godly example. Each of us does serve at Jesus' pleasure and we must be obedient to his leading. What is his will for me today? In Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 57, there were several people that came to Jesus to follow him, and he called to follow him. And, and uh, we see the responses to the things that Jesus told them. It says in verse 57, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus was saying, in effect, do you know what it really means to follow me? It means the forsaking of the comforts and conveniences of life. I do not have a home to call my own, 
This earth affords no rest to me. Foxes and birds have more in the way of natural comfort and security than I. Are you willing to follow me, even if it means forsaking those things which most men consider to be their inalienable rights? And that might mean more to us as Americans than to many people, you know. Are we willing to forsake even those things that are, are our inalienable rights and defined for us? And when we read the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, we are apt to pity him. One commentator remarks, he does not need your pity. Pity yourself, rather, if you have a home that holds you back when Christ wants you out upon the high places of the world. In verse 59, he says to another, follow me. And he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. The essence of the man's request is me first. Lord, let me first. He called Jesus by the name of Lord, but actually he puts his own desires and interests first. The words Lord and me first are totally opposed to each other. Like when, uh, similar when Peter said, uh, not so, Lord, you know, that those don't go together. <laughs> we must choose one or the other. There, this is an expression, this uh, let me go and bury my father. It's an expression used even today in the Middle East to indicate the eldest son's responsibility to remain with his family until the father dies and he can settle his estate. So, Lord, I've got this responsibility to my father, and as soon as I settle the estate, then I'll come and follow you. There were situations where special arrangements could be made for the younger siblings to take this responsibility, but it was primarily that eldest son. Uh, following Jesus is something you do now, not at your own convenience. We have convenience stores, and we have convenience Christianity. These things ought not to be. Again, honoring our parents was right. Following Jesus at his call was more right. And then another in verse 61, another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The draw of home and family cannot be allowed to deter someone from following Jesus. Again, it's not let me first. If you're plowing a field, you have an animal pulling the plow and you're not looking straight ahead on your furrow, then you're going to be all over the place with your plow. You look back and you're not going to be plowing that straight uh, furrow. In our Christian life, we must keep our eyes on Jesus in front of us and we are never to take our eyes off of him. Our desire to follow him may be pitted against our own desires for other things or other directions. We must each seek the Lord for his direction in our lives. I want his direction to be the direction I want to go, but that may not be the case. I may have to deny my own desires and go in the direction that he leads. So there is this pull upon the tender heartstrings of Jesus as his family comes to take him away to help him regain his senses. They try to reach him, but they're un unable to come near when they're concerned he's out of his mind. But later in this passage, they're able to at least get near outside the house where he is. Someone, go tell, his fam tell him his family's out here and wants to talk to him. And they tell Jesus that his mother and brothers are outside seeking him. And he asks in verse 33 of Mark 3, Who's my mother or my brothers? Boy, he has really lost it now. He doesn't know who his mother and his brothers are. Somebody call the head doctor. This, of course, was a pertinent question at the time, as we shall see as Jesus follows up his own question. But it is also a very pertinent question for us today. Who is his mother? Not in the sense of Mary not being his mother, but who do we know her to be? What do we know about Mary? And some have tried to uphold the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, and in doing so have said that these brothers that are mentioned are really not brothers. Maybe they're cousins. The New Testament has a word for cousin, and that word is used in Colossians 4.10, where it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, 
Some translations say the sister son of Barnabas, so his nephew, but the word is uh, cousin and it's used in uh, other Greek literature as, as a cousin relationship. It says about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Or sometimes they'll say these are half-brothers and sisters uh, of Jesus, like from a previous marriage of Joseph, that Joseph was married before and he had uh, sons and daughters. These wouldn't really be half-brothers and sisters then. They'd be step-brothers or sisters. But there's no biblical record of such siblings. There's no mention at his birth or in the sojourn to Egypt and back. Uh, They argue at times that if Jesus were the older son, they would not treat him, as we see in this passage, out of social order and respect. But we must remember that they thought he was ill, and they wanted to rescue him from this situation so he could regain his senses, trying to talk some sense into God who has come in the flesh. How backwards is that? But they did not yet believe in him, his brothers. As for his mother, I think she believed, but, well, she's a mother. He's still her son, and she'll try to protect him as any mother wants to protect her children. Well, Tertullian, who was, he lived about 155 to 220 A.D., he tells us that these brothers and sisters are the uterine siblings of Jesus. Imagine having shared a, a womb with Jesus, even though it's at different times. The idea that these are other than Mary's sons is a later invention. These were children born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. Jesus was an only child, but he had four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. I'm an only child with two half-brothers and two half-sisters. We're a broken family. And so I have a half-brother and half-sister on my father's side that I've never met. I just know that they... Exist or existed. I don't even know if they're still alive. And then I have a half brother and half sister here in in town. We're such a broken family that if we were potsherds, you wouldn't be able to pick up any ashes for a fire to carry them anywhere, or, or wouldn't hold any water. You know, I mean, we're we're totally fractured. But Jesus had these half brothers and half sisters, and uh, James and Jude were a couple of the brothers. And they wrote books in the New Testament, wrote letters. Well, in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we read more about these siblings. It says, uh, he, he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. So he comes back to Nazareth. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? We know he grew up, you know, his father was a carpenter. He learned carpentry. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So we don't have names for his sisters, but we know there were at least two. Could have been more. Uh, We don't find them coming to try and rescue Jesus. They uh, probably were married and were with their own family somewhere. So they were offended at him. And Jesus says to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So it can be difficult for a familiar family member to look beyond the frailty of a sibling. Of course, Jesus had no frailties, but in our situations, it's hard for a familiar family member to look beyond that uh, to accept the truth that is conveyed, conveyed by that other family member. In Matthew 1, 25, we're told that Joseph did not know her, Mary, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So the marriage was not consummated until after Jesus was born, is what that's telling us. And then regarding Jesus' conflict with his family, we we read some about that in Psalm 69. Uh, This is a quoted Messianic Psalm in the New Testament. And in verses 8 and 9, uh, it says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. So, you know, he's testifying that his mother had other children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And you know that verse is particularly quoted concerning Jesus. 
quotes it concerning himself. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So Mary was not a perpetual virgin and the scriptures never declare her to be. In fact, the opposite is true. She had a normal marriage relationship. This doctrine leads to many false ideas and teachings about Mary as well as about her other children. There's a concept that the perpetual virginity of Mary makes her more holy than if she had had marital relations with Joseph. But there's no shame in being married and bearing children. Mary was certainly holy, meaning set apart, for a special purpose in being chosen as the mother of the promised Messiah or Christ, but she wasn't a nun. She was a wife. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we read about Mary's encounter with Gabriel when uh, the, uh, Jesus's, the announcement of Jesus' birth was given, or his conception. In uh, Luke 1, 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, and this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. This is repeated by Elizabeth when she's filled with the Spirit. And she adds, And the fruit of thy womb. Blessed are you among women and the fruit of thy womb. And so here's this guy that appears in your house and he tells you, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at this thing and considered what manner of greeting this was. Is this guy going door to door selling encyclopedias or is he, you know, trying to raise money? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and she, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. And Mary's response is, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary was chosen of God, elect to bear the Son of God, whom he had promised to send into the world. There was only one woman in history who could be chosen for this honor. There were others who probably volunteered, but you couldn't, you couldn't choose yourself for this. It had to be God's choice, right? God chose 12 apostles we talked about a while back. You couldn't choose yourself, you know. It had to be His choice. So the only woman in history, she is blessed among women. Now, Jewish daughters always dreamed of being the one to give birth to the Messiah. And only those in the line of David had any real hope of doing so because he is to sit upon the throne of his father David. Mary is the one chosen. But the dream is not like the reality. The reality contains not only glory, but also vilification and shame, attacks upon her character and moral integrity, and the stress of the many trials associated with Jesus, his mission, and his unexpected execution. In Luke chapter 2, verses 33 and 34, they come to, uh, for Mary's cleansing to the temple after the birth of Jesus. And there's this man, Simeon. Verse 34, it says, Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So this was going to involve pain as well as glory. 
This doesn't seem to fit the dream with the dream of glory of a young maiden. There was much to be endured before the resurrection brought all truth to light about her son. The angel tells her she is blessed among women. He tells her that she has found favor with God. Elizabeth also prophesies her blessedness among women. And some have taken these statements and exalted Mary beyond their meaning. There have been many others in history who have found favor with God. For example, Noah, Moses, many others. Mary certainly had a unique role, and we do appreciate and honor her. And we desire to emulate her surrender to the Word of God and the plan of God for her life. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be done unto me according to your word. But it does a disservice to her and to God to exalt her in some of the ways that has been done. She is blessed among women, not blessed among gods or God himself. There is a title by which Mary has come to be known, the Mother of God. This title began to be applied or at least written about in the third century. Some may have used or taught this earlier, but this is the earliest mention that has been found. There was a a blog article that kind of summarizes the thoughts uh, on it that I want to read to you and I might throw in some comments from time to time. It tells us the phrase Mother of God traces back to the third century and continues to be used in some liturgical churches, including the Roman Catholic Church. One of the topics at the Council of Ephesus in A.D. 431, and to get an idea of the time frame, the Council of Nicaea was in A.D. 325, so this is in A.D. 431. And one of the topics was the use of the Greek term theotokos, literally means God-bearer or the one who gives birth to God, in reference to Mary. Now, that council's use of Theotokos was meant to counter the heresy of Nestorianism, which cleaved the nature and person of Christ in two. Christ's human and divine natures were completely divergent and unconnected. According to Nestorius, Mary gave birth to Christ, but not to God. Mary was the mother of his humanity, which was totally distinct from his divinity. Jesus was two persons sharing one body, essentially, and there are still people who hold that that viewpoint. Well, the Council of Ephesus affirmed the full deity of Christ and unity of his person by saying that Mary did indeed bear God in her womb. Mary is the mother of God in the sense that since Jesus is God, And Mary is the mother of Jesus. She is the mother of God. The Word became flesh, John 1.14, and Mary mothered him. So we see that this usage of the term Theotokos speaks to the deity of Jesus Christ, not to an exaltation of Mary. It was an affirmation of the deity of Christ because that is what was being attacked at at the time. If it's used in this sense, it's quite true, but it's easily misunderstood and twisted to another meaning. We should distinguish the term Theotokos from Mother of God because there is a subtle yet important difference. The term Mother of God could be taken wrongly as applying that Mary was the source or originator of God, similar to how Juno was the mother of Vulcan in Roman mythology. Of course, Christianity teaches that God is eternal and that Jesus Christ has a pre-existent divine nature. The idea that Mary is the mother of God in the sense that she was the source of God or somehow predated God or is herself part of the Godhead is patently unbiblical. So this part of the Godhead, there are still some people who tend to promote that. Mary is a creature of God. The term, the term Theotokos, on the other hand, is more specific and less open to being misconstrued. Theotokos simply implies that Mary carried God in her womb and gave birth to him. Mary was the human agent through whom the eternal Son of God took on a human body and a human nature and entered the world. The term Theotokos was a succinct expression of the biblical teaching of the Incarnation. And that is how the Council of Ephesus used the word. Mary is the God-bearer in that within her body, the divine person of God, the Son, took on human nature in addition to his pre-existing divine nature. Since Jesus is fully God and fully man, it is correct to say that Mary bore God. 
Even though the term Theotokos was originally used to help explain the Incarnation, many people today use the term or the related Mother of God to communicate something different. Through the years, many legends accumulated around the person of Mary, and she became an object of worship in her own right. It was about 350 years after the Council of Ephesus used the term Theotokos in reference to Mary that the Second Council of Nicaea, which was in 787 A.D., declared, the Second Council of Nicaea declared, We honor and salute and reverently venerate the image of our spotless lady, the all-holy mother of God. This shows the trend within the Roman Church to move from a focus on the incarnation of God in Christ to a veneration of the Mother of God, even to the point of honoring her images and praying to her as the Queen of Heaven, the Benefactress, and the Mediatrix. Today, she is, there's a push to have her recognized as the co-redemptrix that she shared in the redemptive, uh, redemptive work of Jesus. The necessity of such veneration is not implied by the term Theotokos, but some people wrongly infer it. Roman Catholic leaders teach their followers to go to Mary to find help in their time of need. Uh, this is a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. From the most ancient times, the Blessed Virgin has been honored with the title Mother of God, to whose protection the faithful fly in all their dangers and needs. The Eastern churches still use the term Theotokos, and they sing hymns called Theotokia to Mary. This portion of a Theotokian is from the liturgy of the Coptic Orthodox Church. Quote, You are the pride of virgins, O Mary the Theotokos. You are the soul's city where the Most High lived, who sits upon the throne. O Virgin Mary, the Holy Mother of God, the trusted advocate of the human race, intercede on our behalf before Christ, whom... You have borne that he may grant unto us the forgiveness of our sins. So that's from a Friday Theotokia. These views of Mary represent a theological shift away from Christ as our sole redeemer and intercessor. First Timothy 2.5 says he's the only mediator between God and man. And there's an overemphasis on Mary as the mother of God. So Mary's been exalted by some to this position of mediatrix where she mediates between men and Jesus, basically. Today she's being touted as the co-redemptrix. She's held up as someone to pray to. And some Catholics, if you talk to them about praying to Mary, they'll say, oh no, we don't pray to Mary. We ask her to pray for us. Uh, well, prayer is talking to someone who's not present. You know, like they're... They're not with you when you're praying. So we're forbidden to pray to the dead. Even if they're the righteous dead, we're not to pray to them. Isaiah 8, 19 and 20 says, When they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God, should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Now, there's a related doctrine um, concerning Mary that's called the Immaculate Conception. And many people mistakenly believe that the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Jesus Christ. And many Catholics also you know, are, suffer under that delusion. You, you know, on the job we were talking, you know, Immaculate Conception. Well, yeah, Jesus was you know, Immaculate Conceived. That's not what that doctrine is. It's uh, that Mary was Immaculately Conceived. Jesus' conception was most assuredly immaculate, that is, without the stain of sin. But the immaculate conception does not refer to Jesus at all. The immaculate conception is a doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church in regards to Mary, Jesus' mother. The official statement of the doctrine reads, The Blessed Virgin Mary, to have been from the first instant of her conception by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God in view of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of mankind, preserved free from all stain of original sin. This was a uh, statement from Pope Pius IX. Ineffabilis Deus. He was speaking infallibly, infallibly from the doctrine. So essentially, the Immaculate Conception is the belief that Mary was protected from original sin, that Mary did not have a sin nature, and was in fact sinless, that she never did sin. I also had a discussion with a Catholic friend about this doctrine, and he, of course, was defending it. 
I shared with him the scriptures that indicate Jesus is the only person who has ever been without sin. Like Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And 1 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And his response was that Jesus needed a clean vessel in which to be carried and born so that he would not be tainted by sin. Well, the sinless conception was the purpose of the virgin birth. In Genesis 3.5, it's the seed of woman that crushes the head of Satan. Isaiah 7.14, this virgin conceives. God is Jesus' father rather than a sinful human father. And so he wasn't subject to the sin nature of mankind. Like he said, you know, he needed a clean vessel to, to be born into, conceived in. And I told him if that were the case, then women in Jesus' ancestral line would have to have been immaculately conceived all the way back. So there would be clean vessels for each one. And he replied that it had to start somewhere. And I agreed. I agreed. I said, it started with Jesus. <laughs> his virgin conception and his sinless godly nature. As to the sinlessness of Mary, she herself testified that God was her Savior. We read that in Luke 1.47. Only sinners need a Savior. Now, the Bible nowhere describes Mary as anything but an ordinary human female, although an exceptional one, whom God chose to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was undoubtedly a godly woman. Mary was surely a wonderful wife and mother. Jesus definitely loved and cherished his mother. We've so a while back in John 19:27, where he told John, Behold your mother, and told Mary, Behold your son. And uh, this would indicate still that his brothers had not yet believed in him, even as he was dying on the cross, or he, you know, she would have been committed to one of them. Uh, but they did believe later, and we find them in the upper room uh, praying with everybody else. But the Bible gives us no reason to believe that Mary was sinless. She's not the mother of the church. Jesus is the only one who builds a church. Mary had a role in his birth, a fantastic blessing of bringing the Son of God into the world, but she has no role in his subsequent work of redemption. He alone is the one who can bring salvation. He alone is the mediator between God and man. There's also the issue of the supposed appearances or apparitions of Mary to various people, mostly Catholic, in which Mary gives messages to them. She often recommends they pray the rosary, usually every day, which includes the Our Father prayer, but many times more than that, the Hail Mary prayer. Uh, some of you know the sequence of these prayers much better than I do. I know there's some glory bees in there, and I guess there are little bees that... <laughs> there's only three glory beads. No, only three oh, three. Oh, is that all? That's all of them. Okay. Um, but you pray to Mary like five times as much, maybe more than that, than you do to uh, to the Father. She sometimes appears with the baby Jesus on her lap. In much Mariology, Jesus is a perpetual infant. And this goes back to the pagan religions as well with you know, some of those pagan gods. At other times, he's on the cross. That is a crucifix. You know, not the empty cross, but he's, he's still hanging there. He is not Lord in these appearances except when he's angry at their sins. And Mary needs to intercede for them and calm him down to divert his judgment. It gives a false impression of the nature of Jesus Christ. He's the one who gave himself because he loves the church and he loves the sinner. She steals the glory from Jesus. These apparitions. I'm not talking about the real Mary. I'm talking about the made-up Mary. This is not the biblical Mary. There is a true Mary of the Scriptures and a false counterfeit Mary of the devil an occult and deceptive Mary. And this should not be surprising. There are counterfeit Jesuses, and there are certainly other counterfeits of the truth of God. There were counterfeit apostles, uh, even in the days when the apostles were still alive. Isaiah 42.8, Isaiah says, I'm, uh, he's speaking for the Lord, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory, I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. 
If you want to learn more about this, Mary, I recommend the book Queen of All and the film Messages from Heaven by Jim Tetlow. There are some other people involved in it. There is one copy left of the Queen of All out on our book table, which you can have for free if you want it. So Jesus asks, who is my mother? The Mary of the Bible, Jesus' mother, is not the Mary of the Catholic Church. Uh, Mark 3, 34 and 35, then it says, He looked around in a circle at those who said about him and said, Here are my mother, mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Jesus is not meaning this as a put down to his actual mother and brothers or sisters. Like we said, they were likely married and somewhere else. But there's a family relationship that is greater than the natural family. And Jesus came to create such a family. The natural family is a temporary family. Spiritual family is a forever family. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 18, we're told, we see Jesus, he's talking about man being a little lower than the angels, but you know he's going to be crowned in overall. He says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. He's got to work here. He's bringing people into the family of God, bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And word perfect can be used as complete, finished, or fulfilled. Now, obviously, he didn't have imperfections, but this was a fulfilling of his mission. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Just as he said, those you know who do the will of God are my brothers, my sister, and my mother. Uh, he looks upon those who are redeemed, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. That's Psalm 22.22. So the psalm of crucifixion uh, and resurrection. And again, I will put my trust in him. This can be quoted from numerous places in the Old Testament. Eight, psalm 18.2 is one of those. And again, he says, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Isaiah 8, 18. Again, a, speaking of a family relationship. And then it says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. 1 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Right. Uh, I've been loosely quoting 1 Corinthians 5.21. I'm talking about him being made sin for us. Uh, and I clarify that he doesn't in any sense become a sinner. He bears our sin upon the cross. So who then is Jesus' mother, brothers, or sisters? He says those who do the will of God. In John chapter 6, uh, verse 26, there are these people who Jesus had fed the 5,000 and they're following him around hoping to get more food. And he says to them in verse 26, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So he's mentioned labor. You know, don't labor for this food that perishes. And they say, what? what kind of work should we do? And Jesus answered them and says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the first step in doing the will of God. Believing in him whom the Father has sent.
So first, the will of God is to believe in Jesus, his person and his work. No labor can earn salvation from God. But faith in Christ Jesus will result in forgiveness of sins and justification in God's sight. In Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, we're told, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So you can't earn anything by working. Otherwise, you're not receiving grace by faith. It's a debt that God owes you. I've earned this. But he says, but to him who does not work. Oh, good. I don't have to work. He's talking about not working for righteousness. Him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. So first we believe. Next, we do what Jesus says to do. When we talked about the wedding at Cana and Jesus telling his mother that his hour had not yet come, someone pointed out that in John 2, we have the last words of Mary recorded for us in the New Testament. She said in John 2, 5, uh, she says to the servants, whatever he, Jesus, says to you, do it. Mary pointed people to Jesus, not to herself. And when his half-brothers believed, they did the same thing. Mary's advice is the best advice available at any time. Whatever he says to you to do, do it. It was more to Mary's credit that she did the will of God than it was to be his mother. In Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, uh, Jesus speaking, and it happened as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Blessed is Mary. Let's bow down to Mary. But he said more than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. If Mary's only service was as a womb and a nursing mother, her honor would not be as great as those who hear the word of God and keep it. Seeking and praying to Mary has no value and in fact is detrimental to true spirituality. Yes, She is to be highly respected and indeed is blessed among women. But it is her son whom we are to seek and to whom and in whose name we are to pray. David Guzik said to deliberately go through Mary to get to Jesus is to regard Jesus as hard-hearted and Mary as tender-hearted. And that's what's conveyed or portrayed. This concept is totally alien from the Bible. It comes from mother-son ideas prevalent in pagan religions, as Barnhouse points out. So Mary's, Mary's final word is entirely valid for all time. Whatever he says to you, do it. 